This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Temple's work obviously has become quite renowned in the world of autism, um, but more importantly, her work in animal uh, sciences as well, and that's probably why you're here. Just to sort of get a... Um, kind of a feel for Temple's work. She's been here. She flew in Thursday night. We did a workshop seminar for 600 educators yesterday uh, and fa faculty and staff and students here. And then last night she did another event for another 500 people. And so you can see the popularity and we have almost a sold out crowd here as well. It is with great honor that we have been able to have uh, Temple come. And just to give her a little bit of a background, she was born in Boston, Massachusetts. Temple's achievements obviously are fairly remarkable. You know about them. Um, I know about her work because of education. And others know her work because of the treatment of animals and their humane treatment. Um, Temple obtained her BA from Franklin Pierce College in 1970. In 74, she was employed by the Livestock Education editor, she was a livestock editor for the Arizona Farmers Ranch, Ranchman and also worked for Corral Industries on equipment design. In 1975, she earned her MS from Animal Science at Arizona State and then moved forward to finish her PhD in Animal Science at the University of Illinois. It is because of her work, certainly in my field, where advocacy is needed to help work on the strengths of young people, uh, to find out what they're really good at, and then we can deal with the rest of our life's challenges, but more importantly as well to the um, humane treatment of animals and the research that she provides. As a Montanan, originally on a farm, uh, making changes, we're on a ranch, we're always quite difficult, but our work certainly on our ranch has improved because of Temple's work. So I would like you to help me welcome Temple Grandin to Spokane. It's great to be here. Hopefully everything will work out. Well, I still have to get to where I can, yes, I'm gonna stand here anyway, because I gotta work the slides. Um, it's really, really good to be here. Got a lot of things to talk about today. I wanna talk about animal behavior just in general. This should give you a lot of insight. Okay, working with any animal, it doesn't matter what animal you're working with, a calm animal is easier to handle. That's true for cattle, a cat, a dog, any kind of animal. And once an animal gets all fearful and scared, it takes 20 to 30 minutes for it to calm down. So what you want to try to do is not have it get all scared. It's just that simple. An animal's world is sensory-based. If you want to understand animal behavior, you've got to get away from verbal language. That's the first thing you have to do. What is it seeing? What is it hearing, smelling, touching? What is it experiencing? It's sensory-based, not word-based. Now, I find when a lot of people are trying to um, troubleshoot an animal behavior problem, they tend to oversimplify. I'll have people say things to me like, my dog is crazy, so what do I do about it? <laughs> well, seriously, well, I don't know what you're going to do about it. And you're going to drive me crazy if you just keep doing that. Okay. <laughs> I'm, but they, they, you've got to, um, what did it exactly do? Was it crazy happy or was it crazy 
fighting somebody. When you think in words, you tend to oversimplify. And I have found that when I'm troubleshooting a horse behavior problem, a dog behavior problem, maybe you have a problem with a kid in school, or maybe you have a problem in a factory. People have a tendency not to categorize problems. Like, is there something wrong with the equipment? Or something wrong with how the people operate the equipment? You've got to question and get enough detail to figure things out. Now, I get asked all the time, how did being autistic help my work with animals? I'm an extreme visual thinker. Now, when I was really young, I didn't know that visual thinking, a lot of people don't do it. I didn't know that. I just assumed that the way I think was the same as the way everybody else thinks. It's been an interesting journey for me to find out that a lot of people have a lot less visual thought. I discussed that in my book, The Autistic Brain. And one of the things I've discovered is you have people that are extreme visual thinkers. They often go into careers involving art and things like that. And when I was a young child, my ability in art was always, always, always encouraged. Another kind of mind that certain people have is the pattern thinker or the mathematical mind. You know, these are the guys that are going to be super good at computer programming. These sort of things. See, in your brain, you've got circuits for what is something. That's the mind of the visual thinker. The mathematician mind are the circuits for where is something located in space. Think bird migration, things of that sort. Then you've got word thinkers. Word thinkers tend to be a lot more linear in their thinking. Visual thinkers a lot more associative in their thinking. Understand animals, you got to get away from verbal language. That's what you got to do. You got to enter a sensory based world. What is it seeing? What's your animal looking at? How would it be perceiving it? In humans, there's evidence that language covers up sensory based thinking because it's a type of Alzheimer's that destroys the language cortex. And then sometimes art ability comes out for a while. Then eventually the whole brain gets trashed. But language sort of overcovers sensory-based thinking. Now watch ear radar. You can really see this on cattle. You can see it on horses. Uh, they can move the ears independently. All your grazing animals can move the ears independently. Dogs, the ears are yoked. But you can still see, what's it orienting towards? What's your animal orienting towards? I want to try to get you to be better observers, no matter what animal you are working with. Um, some of the very earliest work that I did with cattle, I noticed they would see a coat on a fence, a hose on the ground. They'd see some distraction, a reflection, and they would stop and not go through the chute. All right, let's see how good you are at observation here. Well, this particular slide says it's avoiding a streak of light. I have another version of this slide that talks about the non-slip flooring. Same slide. And the non-slip flooring is really, really important. Animals panic if they're slipping. That applies to a dog at a veterinary clinic. If you go on Google Images and you type in, you know, cute puppies at the veterinarian, you're going to see a lot of puppies like this in the brace position. And that doesn't make a very good experience at the veterinary clinic. Handling cattle, it's really important to have non-slip flooring on things such as scales and things like that. The normal human mind tends to ignore details. I've been doing these talks for 40 years. 
Why do I still have to keep talking about chains hanging down in chutes? There's sometimes things this simple, just remove it. You might have the vehicle parked near the fence. Where do your animals come up and stop? Now, this is especially a problem in facilities that animals don't go in every day. Okay, the dairy cow will learn to walk by the chain. Okay, so the beef cow comes up and stops and looks at the chain. Give her a chance to look at it, because if you just shove her up there, she's going to turn back on you. You've got to give that animal time to look at the chain, put its head down, look at whatever's on the ground, and, and then when the leader goes, the others will follow. You've got to give them a chance to look at it. Get down in the chute and see what they're seeing. On a sunny day, you're going to get a whole lot of shadows. Cloudy day, you won't get the shadows. You can use light to attract a horse into a trailer at night. Or you might have a handling facility that's inside like a black hole, like a dark movie theater. The cattle are not going to want to go in there. I get asked all the time, do cattle know they're going to get slaughtered? That's something I had to answer really early in my career. So I went down to the swift plant, watched them walk up the chute. Then I went out to the feed yard and watched them go in the vaccinating chute, and they behaved the same way in both places. If they knew they were going to get slaughtered, they should have been wilder at the slaughter plant. Now, animals, also a lot of kids with autism and other, other uh, differences, make sensory-based categories. When I was a little kid, I separated the cats from the dogs by size. Yeah, that worked fine until our neighbors got a dachshund. <laughs> so after the neighbors got a dachshund, I had to figure out why the dachshund was not a dog. Okay, she barked like a dog, so she sounded like a dog. She smelled like a dog. She also had the same nose shape as a dog. So I had to still find sensory-based features that the dachshund had in common with all the larger dogs that were in the neighborhood. Making categories. Uh, cattle and horses will make categories. A common problem we see at the slaughter plant is some cattle coming in really, really super wild. Now, a man on a horse and a man on the ground are two different pictures. So if you have a ranch where they've done everything on horseback and done everything beautifully on horseback, and then you go to the meat packing plant, you go to the sale barn, and the cow sees its first um, person on foot, the flight zone's gone from this big to the width of this room. But think about it. Man on the ground is novel and new. Man on the horse is safe and familiar. Now, horses do the same thing. I've talked to a lot of people who have adopted Mustangs, and they go, oh, ride them, fine. But then you have sometimes have problems with things on the ground, like shoeing and veterinary. Because in the horse's past, people on the ground did something bad. You see, they make categories, but it's sensory-based. It's really important that cattle learn how to go in and out of pens with a man on foot before you send them on down the road. Okay, dogs will make categories. For example, when I'm on the leash, I protect my owner. And when I'm off the leash, I can go play. And this is something that um, is really important with service dogs to um, train them that when the vest is on, that's work. And when the vest is off, it is play. You see, that is a category. You know, I've seen a lot of puppies in training, and um, he had his vest on, and he wanted to smell my crotch, and I just pushed him away. You got your vest on, you can't do that kind of behavior. Not acceptable. Okay, this is a horse that I wrote about in my book, Animals in Translation. Lots of copies up there. And this horse was terrified of 
black cowboy hats. He'd been abused by somebody with a black cowboy hat who chucked alcohol in his eyes during, a, during some veterinary stuff. And so anybody wearing a black hat was bad. White hat was fine. Oftentimes an animal will associate something bad that's happened with something it was seeing or hearing right when the bad thing happened. Then I took the hat and I put it on the ground. And when I put that hat on the ground, it was less scary. But then as I took the hat and I got it closer and closer and closer to my head, the horse started to tense up and get ready to rear because you were getting it more like the picture of the dreaded thing. Now, the problem that I've got with a black hat fear is I can't get rid of all the black hats in the world. So then I work on desensitizing this. And the problem you have is you can make it a whole lot better, but it has a bad habit of popping back, especially in a really high-strung horse. All right, let's look at the horse's ears. Okay, let's just, uh, the mouse here, and look at that horse's ear. What do you think the horse's ear is pointed at? The what? Camera, that's right. That's the kind of stuff that I want you noticing. What is your animal um, noticing? All right, I'm gonna, I had a big black purse like that out in my car, and I'm kicking myself I didn't present it to the horse. I had to spend a lot of time on purse websites to find that same purse. You know, maybe if I took that black neck pillow and I put it on my head. Sometimes an object that's kind of similar looking will also trigger the fear memory. Okay, here are some specific fear memories that animals can get. A dog might get afraid of the place he was hit by a car. I've seen horses where they were fine with one type of bit, but with a jointed bit, they went crazy because in the past they got abused with a jointed bit. Then the horse makes a category. Jointed bits are bad, solid one-piece ones are okay. Dogs can recognize the voices of good and bad people. A common generalization that horses will make and sometimes dogs will make is guys are bad. Sorry, guys. It's a common generalization. And you might have horses afraid of long, straight things. You see, it's sensory-based. Okay, and there's some really awful bits you can buy online that really hack up a horse's mouth. And then any all-jointed bits are bad. So let's say you take all your jointed bits and you're blindfolded and you, and you hold those in one hand and take the one pieces and hold them in another hand. They're different feeling pictures. Feeling pictures. Okay, if you're into horses, go into the tack room and have some, close your eyes and have somebody else put bits in your hand. And then you can start to categorize them by feel. See, I want to try to teach you to get away from words. Yeah, one-piece bits are different. Okay, a horse that might fear a long, straight object. There was a horse that fell over backwards in the cross ties, and a big, thick rope went right down him like this. And he got afraid of anything that was long and straight. See, that, that's making a category. Okay. Here's other stuff that might show up in the environment that's vertical and long and straight. This is why when you're trying to troubleshoot a behavior problem, oh, I got a horse that just sometimes goes berserk. One of the most common ones is my horse or my steer was fine at home and he's going crazy at the show. You better get them used to flags, bikes, and balloons. There's a very interesting experiment that was done in Germany by Lerner and Fent. And Lerner and Fent found that if you train a horse to tolerate a blue and white umbrella opening, 
that doesn't translate to an orange tarp flapping around. Now that may translate to some photography stuff that's sort of umbrella-like. You see, it's a tarp is a totally different visual image. Let's get them used to flags. One of the best ways to get them used to flags would be to decorate the corral fence with flags. Let the horses walk up to it. Don't go shoving it in his face. Put a bike out there. Let him just walk up to it. Then you walk it around gradually. Now, the reason why bikes are scary is they sneak up on you, and they move rapidly. They don't tell you they're coming. Well, that's not a, a horse, but maybe if the stick's horizontal, you know, is that going to bother him? I don't know. It was a horse that was terrified of naked white saddle pads. And if you put the saddle on top, it's okay. But think about it. A saddle pad is a different picture with a saddle on top. So I want to get you thinking about this from a visual standpoint. Now, what's been learned about fear memories is you cannot erase the files. You can train the horse to suppress it, but it's still there. It's really important that an animal's first experience with something new, new person, horse trailer, new corrals, any new thing, be a good first experience. Because if the first experience with something new is terrible, like the vet office, boy, they don't forget. And then with flighty animals, you must gradually introduce them to new things. I did a lot of work with the Denver Zoo on training antelopes to tolerate, um, uh, uh, to, to uh, cooperate during uh, veterinary procedures. Now, there was one veterinarian that always shot the antelopes with the dart gun. He could never work with the trained animals. They knew his voice, they knew his walk, they knew what he looked like. You could dress him up in other clothes. He could not talk, they still recognized him. He was the bad person. Everybody else could work with those antelopes, but not the doctor who was the dart gun man. Now, the purpose of this slide is to get across the concept that when we force animals, when we handle them, they're going to get all really stressed out. Now, you've got deer netted. I've talked to a number of wildlife people, and they go, we held this deer down for only 30 seconds. How could I be stressed? I said, imagine if you went out there, somebody knocks you over, grabs your purse. You're going to be really, really super stressed. It's all a matter of how an animal perceives something. I've got a paper that's a free download online that you might want to look at. It's called, How Do Animals React and Perceive Stressful Situations such as handling, restraint, and transport. We'll just say that title again. How do animals react and perceive stressful situations such as handling, transport, or restraint? Or another way you can look it up is go on Google Scholar, type in my name, set it for 2015. You'll also find a bunch of book chapters. Uh, you can partially get into those, but then you get to this paper, it will come up. It's a completely free download. Now down there at the bottom, you've got the stress hormone level when cattle are sleeping, and then our trained antelope. When animals voluntarily cooperate with whatever we do to them, then you're going to get less fear stress. That is the basic principle of this slide. And there are antelope that we worked on training for blood sampling. Now, this is a very flighty animal, so it took 10 days to teach it not to freak out when we jerked open a sliding door. So the first day, move the sliding door about this much, it goes and then it orients. And when the animal orients, then the brain decides, do I keep watching or freak out? 
Scientists have actually discovered a switch in the brain that can go from keep watching or we're going to have a big, massive fear response. So it took 10 days just to train them to door opening. And we got papers in zoo biology on this. When Nancy Earlbeck and I did this research, we were looked at like we were crazy. Yeah, every zoo's doing it now. And we've got the directions. Okay. There's a puppy there in the brace position. And I'll show those pictures to veterinary students. I say, you notice anything about that picture, that puppy? It's not in a very, very comfortable position there. Got to give it a non-slip floor. And the vet goes, I don't want to bother cleaning like pads to put on the table. So well then tell the people when they get a new puppy to buy a bath mat with a rubber backing. Get the puppy accustomed to that at home. They can bring that in and then take it home and clean it. Also, there's an optimal pressure for holding an animal. This applies to holding a small animal or holding a bigger animal with a hydraulic squeeze chute. Also, if it feels off balance, it's going to struggle. The fear of falling is a very, very strong fear. You get the fear of falling triggered, animals can just go berserk. Okay, question a lot of people ask is, do they actually have emotions? Let's just look at the facts. Prozac works on dogs. That is known. The neurotransmitters are the same. The, uh, part, the uh, emotional systems in the subcortex for things like fear and rage are the same in all mammals. The thing that's been interesting about this is most of the research on this has been the neuroscience literature. So we get a big problem in science where scientists get in their silos. It's been in the neuroscience literature for years and years and years. And in my book, Animals Make Us Human, really review this research. Unfortunately, they didn't uh, order that. We had some little miscommunication on some of the books that should have been ordered. Barnes & Noble has done a great job. It's not Barnes & Noble's fault. It's just that uh, uh, they didn't directly communicate with me uh, on which books to purchase. But animals make us human. I cover the research with the references. You can order it from Barnes & Noble. They'll order it for you. Animals make us human. The research that shows that animals actually have emotions. See, and now that's gradually getting over into the veterinary literature and the animal science literature. Okay, Jack Penskep is a neuroscientist that's my age. Been around for a long time. And he's been talking about the basic emotional systems in the brain. You have fear. What does fear do? It makes animals avoid predators. That's what it does. What does rage do? Predators eating you, you fight it off. That's what rage does. Now, separation distress or panic is a separate system from fear. This is when you have a dog you've left home alone and it's chewed up the house. That's separation distress. Then you've got seeking. That's approaching new things. And the thing is, each one of these things, also you have sex, mother-young nurturing, that's the oxytocin system in play. Each one of these things is like a slot on the music mixing board. High fear, low fear. Arab horse, beat it up, you can really traumatize it, run it. I'm not a fan of rough training methods. People that tend to favor rough training methods use the genetics where maybe you can get away with roughing it up. You can, you can have an animal that's a high separation distress or low separation distress. That can be measured. It's a separate system from fear. And then you've got one Labrador retriever where all that Labrador retriever wants to do is chase the ball. And then it's a real frisky, high-energy lab. 
Then you got the lazy, big, heavy lab that makes a great dog for somebody in a wheelchair. And they're both lab. One's high seek, one's low seek. But each one of these things, and then of course you got sex. Yep, you got the Chinese pig, um, high fat, no meat, zillions of little piglets, and they'll get out of anything to go breed something. And then you've got the mother young caring. And then you've got um, one of my students, Connie Flerker, did a study on beef cattle, and we looked at um, uh, what's called calf defense patterns. And some cows will call their calf. Others don't. Some are much more vigilant. And there's a few bad Angus moms that just walk off and leave it. Don't want that. Now, there's uh, some systems in the brain, both in the nucleus accumbens and in the amygdala, which is the fear system, you can switch back and forth between approach or fear, like a switch. The biochemical switches, they've actually been discovered. Some of the references on the early research is in animals make us human. Now, Animals in Translation is going to be coming out fairly soon with a new ebook version that's updated. I don't know when the paper one's going to get updated. It's a different publisher now, but, the, but a new ebook is going to be coming out where I'm putting some of the latest, re interesting new research on, and at, um, on, on, on more on this sort of stuff. These switches really do exist. I had a situation where, where I narrowly missed a car accident that really showed how these systems worked. Uh, I was minding my business uh, in the right-hand lane, and this stupid idiot with a little low trailer with no tailgate passes me really fast, and a two-by-six came off about this long. It came off, came diagonally across the highway. My visual system was working perfectly. I locked onto it like radar. It slowed down. That's actually a function of the visual system. The plank was floating about this far above the road. And I locked onto it like radar, and I moved my car over into the breakdown lane across the rumble strip. And I was going 75 miles an hour, and I managed to straddle the board. I did a perfect piece of driving. Then the switch flipped. I went from seek to fear, swearing, 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 swearing. <laughs> and it took half an hour for me to calm back down. You see, that's the system there working. It worked exactly like it's supposed to work. And I avoided that accident. And it was just like a switch. Yep, didn't hit the board. Then I went into, you blanky blank blank. This, this blanky blank board, blanky blank stupid trailer. You know, calling it all kinds of stuff. Now, the thing about something new is things that are new are both scary and attractive. They are attractive when the animal is allowed to voluntarily approach. So I put a clipboard down in the middle of a bunch of cattle in the feed yard, and they come up and sniff it. Then the wind flaps the paper, and they jump back. See, that's the switch working. I used to call it curiously afraid. And when I first made this observation in 1998, the switch hadn't been discovered. Yep, then animals make us human. Uh, the, the, uh, the discovery of the switch, the Berridge papers were published. Now, you might wonder why would NIH be wanting to study this stuff? Because they're trying to figure out drug addiction. That's what they're trying to do. That's why they're studying it. OK, here's an example of an animal orienting. You've all seen deer do this. Now, look at how one ear is on me, and the other ear is watching the forest. 
But when that animal orients, well, is it going to freak out and run away? Is it going to keep watching, maybe keep grazing? You see, that's when decision gets made. When you're troubleshooting behavior, let's start to figure out which one of these circuits is motivating the behavior. What motivates behavior? It's these, these, these circuits. They're there. All mammals have got them. Okay. Should the owner be present when you take your dog to the vet? Now, first of all, that dog has got white eye. That is not a happy dog. And there's actually evidence-based research that shows that when cattle get white eye, when you're working them in the squeeze chute, they are really, really stressed out, really gotten fearful. But should the owner be there? It depends on how the dog perceives it. If it's um, some little scared dog, probably yes. If it's, um, let's say, it's drug dealer's uh, really nasty dog, no. Because in that situation, that dog's going to want to protect the druggie against the vet. But let's say it's a police dog. And this police dog has been trained that when you have the Kong toy in your mouth, strange people can touch you. Then the police officer should be there. You see, this is looking at how is it being perceived. Now we got some animals that will do abnormal behavior. Dogs home alone, licking their leg until they get it all sore and nasty. That's the separation distress. You've got big cats at the zoo pacing. You see, think about the animal in the wild. The animal in the wild, like the big cat, it walks long distances. The dog, we have bred the dog to be this hyper-social being that really pays attention to us. And some dogs are much more needy, and they have a real hard time with the, being home alone, and they might need to be put with somebody else when you go to work. Okay, what do gerbils and hens want? Well, interesting research done with the gerbil shows, if you've got a gerbil in some kid's bedroom and it's digging and digging and digging, you don't give it more dirt. You give it cover. It has an instinct to hide from non-existent aerial predators in the kid's bedroom. Might put, give it a plastic pipe to go in. That stops digging. What's the hen want? Think about how the hen lives in the wild. Pheasants, you know, those kind of ground-dwelling birds, how do they live in the wild? Hide in the bushes to lay their eggs, where they're not going to get eaten. Roost up high at night. So a hen has a natural instinct to help find a place to hide. So one of the things in some of the newer housing systems for laying hens is give them a place to hide. And that's scientifically documented, highly motivated. There's another book, if you're really interested in, in uh, animal welfare, uh, from an academic standpoint, I have a book called Improving Animal Welfare, Practical Approach. It's not quite as pricey a textbook as the one that's out there. Uh, Humane Livestock Handling, that's my book for ranchers. That was the one that was supposed to be here today, Humane Livestock Handling. Um, you can pick it up online for, for probably really, really cheap price. Uh, accidentally, uh, they ordered the textbooks by mistake, and they are very expensive. I got them to put the price down. Uh, they've got it down as low as they can get it and not lose money on them. I, I don't set the price for that. It's a really good book, but textbook publishers make stuff really expensive. I also have a lot of stuff on my website, grandon.com. Just my last name, grandon.com. Got to spell grandon right, grandon.com. Got lots of information on animal behavior. What do dogs need? They need lots of activity or seeking. And they also need to be with people all the time. We've bred this hypersocial emotional animal 
does like to be alone very much. Now look at the position of that golden retriever's mouth. See how relaxed that is? That's what Patricia McConnell calls a relaxed mouth. And she's got a very nice book on lots of pictures that show um, you know, how animals express their emotions. That's an extremely relaxed dog. It's not panting. It's just a relaxed, open mouth position. Now when they clamp the mouth shut, that's when they get a little more anxious. The horse needs grazing. Got to be really careful not to frighten horses. It's a polar bear need. It needs stuff for seeking. It's a high seeker. They walk and walk and walk and walk. All right. Why is the bull, in some cases, especially the dairy bull, the most dangerous animal in the farmyard? And the reason for that is mistaken identity. Okay, beef bulls are out there in the pasture. Uh, they grow up in a herd of cattle. They know their cattle. Where you get a really dangerous situation with male grazing animals, this could be a hand-reared deer, it could be a lot of different animals. You take a young bull calf, rear it by itself, then when it gets sexually mature at 18 to 24 months of age, turns and attacks the person, because now he's got to prove he's the man of the herd. And instead of doing that with the other cattle, he does it on people. So if you have an orphan bull calf, Let's just make a steer out of it right now, make it a kid's 4-H project or FFA project because this is a guy thing. It is a guy thing. And, and uh, this is not a steer problem. It's not a heifer problem. It's a guy thing. You want to have bulls that are safer, rear them in a social group. They've got to grow up learning that they're cattle. I'm concerned that a lot of pets don't get enough socialization. It's also very important to train puppies. Toddlers are people too. Got to learn that little kids and toddlers are people too. Because you don't want the dog to put that in the prey category, that's for sure. Okay, let's talk about some things I've learned about stockmanship and, um, and stockmanship getting better. The good news is cattle handling has greatly improved. The bad news is public doesn't know about it. Now I have found in training people that about 20% of people, if you train them to be a good stock person, they get it. They have the neck and they get it and they stay good. <coughs> then you have a lot of people that slip back into old bad practices. Unless you keep measuring it. You manage things that you measure. <coughs> it's just like traffic. If the police didn't measure speeding and things like that, you would have a totally horrible mess with traffic. You've got to prevent bad from becoming normal. That's what you've got to prevent. Lameness in dairy cattle has gotten up to 25 or 30 percent because it's crept up slowly. People got used to seeing it. Three scientific studies show that if you ask the dairyman, how many lame cows you have. If they haven't actually measured them, they'll underestimate by half. Doesn't matter if it's pasture or indoor dairy. Now there's kind of three ways you can look at auditing animal welfare. I've done a lot of work on standards. And the trend now is to go with standards that are outcome measures. Done this with meatpacking. Let's say we do it with handling. I can measure things like how many cattle fell down during handling in the crowds. Well, needs to be 1% or less. How many animals did you hit with the electric prodder? Now my student Ruth Bolliwody, 
did a big survey out in the feed yards. And if you want to look that survey up online, her name is spelled Woolly Woody. It's a funny name. I'll spell it for you. W-O-I-W-O-D-E. Woolly Woody. W-O-I-W-O-D-E. Ruth Woolly Woody. And she went to 28 large feed yards and, and watched cattle being handled. The falling down was less than 1%. The percentage of animals hit with the electric prodder was right around 5%. Boy, in the bad old days, it used to be 500%. That's a big improvement. This is because um, a lot of undercover videos out there, you know, people don't want it that's showing up on YouTube and they're working on doing a better job of handling. That's good news because I can remember the bad old days when I was out in the packing plants working on installation of equipment. Oh, it was bad. People don't realize how the 80s and the early 90s, they were just horrible. And then you have some practices you just prohibit, like dragging a downed animal, slamming a door on an animal. And the old way would be to tell you exactly how to build stuff. No, nope. when I did the um, McDonald's audits for the meatpacking plants, we didn't tell them how to build anything. But if they didn't shoot 95% of the cattle with a single shot, they failed the audit. If you had more than 1% fall down anywhere in the facility, from unloading up to the stunner, you failed the audit. You could have no more than three cattle bellering and mooing in the stun box. And you had to get 75% with no electric prod, and you had to get them all dead when you hung them up. Five numbers, they had to make them. And it worked. It was very, very simple. It was just like traffic rules. You see, and these are outcome variables. You know, an animal could be mooing because you slammed the door on it. It could be mooing because a restrainer squeezed it too hard. It could be mooing because you stuck it with electric prods. It's outcome. Works really well. I have a lot of stuff on Grandin.com about this. So here are things I can measure for cattle handling. Percentage falling. Percentage vocalizing when you catch them in the squeeze. Now, obviously, if you brand them, they're going to vocalize. But they shouldn't vocalize from the head gate or the squeeze. Percentage running. I want animals walking or trotting, not running. I can measure that. Then I can tell, am I getting better or getting worse? How many did you use the electric prod on? How many ran into things? Then I manage what I measure. This prevents bad from becoming normal. And there's been some really big improvements. But a lot of the public doesn't know about it. I'm doing more and more talks where I'll go to a college on the East Coast. I went to college on the East Coast and I talked to some nutrition students they were totally, totally nothing to do with livestock. They had seen food ink. That's all they knew. They thought everything with livestock was bad. And I challenged them that if you do grazing right, you can actually improve land. That was like a totally new concept to them. Now, what are some other things I can tell that animals, especially horses and cattle, are getting scared? Whites of the eyes showing. Cattle and, and horses switch the tail. And it goes faster and faster and faster and faster. Then it kicks or it bucks you off, skin's quivering, head held up high, pooping, I need to get pooping on it. Because you scared the crap out of them, pooping. <laughs> Heads up high, looking around. Now sometimes in a handling facility, a very simple change can make a difference. This is what I found working with the packing plants. If I put a light on the entrance of the chute, I was able to reduce electric pride use from 38% to 4%. And the handlers are trained only poke it with a prod if it didn't go. All I did was duct tape a light to the entrance of the chute. That's all I did. There's an example of the light lighting up the way in front. 
about what they see. They're more scared of the dark than they are of getting slaughtered. You can also identify easy to handle versus hard to handle pigs or cattle. And when it comes to pigs and cattle, there's, um, it's really important that people have walked through the pens, get pigs used to the man on foot or lady on foot walking through them. Same thing with the man on foot for the cattle. Very, very important to both of them because you can get into some very bad safety issues at the plant with cattle. And with the pigs, you're just going to end up with meat quality issues because they just pile up and screech because they haven't seen a man on foot inside the pen. See, the pigs differentiate between a person in the alleyway and a person walking through them. You've actually got to go in the pens and walk through them. Now, the other thing, if you're writing guidelines, and I've done a lot of work with writing guidelines for a lot of people, don't be vague. What does handle them properly mean? I don't know. What does sufficient space mean? You've got to write it clearly. And there's an awful lot of things written today in regulations that are deliberately written vaguely. I was reading some stuff on internet regulations, like how much one service provider can own the uh, you know, web uh, services. And they use the term commercially reasonable. What does commercially reasonable mean when you're trying to determine whether a certain, how much of a market an internet provider can tie up? Who writes that kind of stuff? I like stuff that's clear. Now, the principle that I apply to animal welfare is the first thing, if I'm making an animal welfare program for a feed yard or a ranch, is I've got to make sure a bad YouTube video doesn't come off my ranch. And you don't do it by banning phones. You can't get away from them. You make sure you don't do stuff that's going to look terrible on YouTube. Then the next thing you've got to do is you've got to prevent suffering, like measure lameness, body condition score, uh, sores and lesions on animals, handling scoring. If they're indoor animals, I've got to make sure they don't have ammonia high levels. And then the next level would be looking at some behavior needs, which is a non-issue with cattle because they're outside. And then the Europeans are looking in the positive emotions. Are the animals actually having a good time? But there needs to be, you can't measure hundreds of things. And you want to make sure that really important critical control points, like high levels of lame cattle, for example, yeah, there's no way you can have good welfare if uh, half your dairy cows are lame. There's no way. Also, this is based on things I can observe. It's not a paperwork audit. There's a tendency now for a lot of things to turn into a big paperwork audit. Yep, and they sit in the office and they just make it up. That's not good. Now, here are things that I would consider absolutely basic to any animal welfare program. Body condition score on breeding animals. Lameness. Filthy, dirty animals. There's some other countries where they're keeping cattle in buildings and they're in this much liquid you-know-what. Uh, swollen hawks on dairy cows. Coat condition. One thing that concerns me with some of the organic is people are not treating sick animals. That's a big concern. Ammonia levels in indoor facilities. Because how can you have good animal welfare if you have high, you know, 75 parts per million of ammonia which is more than triple the safety level for people, and have good welfare. Okay, lameness is an example of an outcome variable that's caused by many different things. See, when you do the audit, I got lame cattle. Then it's up to managers and veterinarians to figure out what's causing it. One of my big concerns right now in beef cattle is seeing a lot of problems with leg conformation. 
to post like it, crooked, that's genetics. Let's be careful when we select for carcass traits of the new genomic power tools that we don't end up getting a situation where we accidentally select for bad leg conformation. Uh, one of my students, Marcy Franks, for her master's thesis, went on four semen websites. This paper is also online, 2015 uh, Google Scholar. And we looked to see how many of the bulls on the major semen websites you could actually uh, see their feet, and it wasn't covered up by grass or straw. Only 19% of the pictures had fully visible feet and legs. And then in the last five years, when Photoshop got really easy to use, more of them were covered up. Oh, well, some of the Photoshop, it's just ridiculous. All right, I'm very concerned about what I call biological system overload. I've got another paper, it's called Animal Welfare and Society Concerns, Finding the Missing Link. You can also look it up online, it's free. You could overload with genetics. Look at the bulldog. You keep uh, selecting for the appearance traits, it gets any more wrinkles, he's going to suffocate. <laughs> it can't walk, it can't breathe, and it can't have its babies naturally. Or you push cattle too high with high energy feed. Breeding for extreme traits. Just pushing biology too hard. Okay, what are some of the things that, you know, when you do single trait selection? Lameness, shorter lifespan. Some of the dairies now are realizing that maybe it might be a really good idea to go with a smaller cow that lasts for three or four mil years of milking instead of a gigantic cow that only lasts for uh, two years of milking. I think we have to look at disease susceptibility. Let's look at this uh, porcine epidemic diarrhea. We lost 9% of the pig supply. Avian influenza took out 11% all the laying hens in the U.S. That is scary. That's official USDA figures. What happened to those pig's ears? Another pig ate them. We want to make sure, genetically, that beef cattle doesn't repeat mistakes the pig industry made in the late 80s. They started just selecting for carcass traits. Rapid gain, thin back fat, giant loin. And they accidentally selected for aggressive pigs that bit the ears off of other pigs and did all kinds of things. And nobody would do that on purpose. They also had very bad leg problems. Let's make sure that some of our fancy cattle don't walk down that road. There is still a place for visual appraisal of animals to make sure we have good feet and legs. Well, and sometimes uh, things are, traits are linked. You breed two of those together, you're probably going to get deaf animals, neurological problems, epilepsy. You overselect, you ruin your animal. And a lot of dairy cows today only last for two lactations, but the progressive dairies are going with the um, smaller, more, you know, less productive but longer-lived cows. Now, I've been very interested now, you know, consumers look at the industry, so I've been looking at a lot of consumer research. And what the consumer research is showing is that a farmer or a rancher is a more trusted source of information to the consumer than a food company's advertisements. Farmers and ranchers need to work on communicating. Another big survey that was done by Charlie Arnett, Arnett was done, presented at the 2015 American Society for Animal Science meeting on young consumers today, like it or not, values matter more than the science. I know that scientists aren't going to want to hear that. As a scientist, I didn't like hearing that. 
And what he said is that if a scientist was a mom and could talk about feeding her family, she was more credible than just a government scientist. So we got to show that, you know, ranchers are doing good things on the land. Family ranchers, they want to feed their kids. Look, you know, the consumer is interested in, you know, buy local and all that kind of stuff. But it's getting more into values. People aren't reading as much now. I'm getting very, very worried about this. Well, there's Improving Animal Welfare Practical Approach, and there's my Humane Livestock Handling book, which has got lots of corral designs in it. You can pick that one up online really inexpensively. Also, there were some FFA instructors in here. It's got some really nice beginning welding projects for gate latches, gate hinges, a latch that you can open from horseback. It's uh, nice uh, things for uh, students to build. Okay, let's just open it up for some questions.